So this morning we're going to look at another one of Paul's letters, the letter to Philemon. Uh, It's a short letter, only one chapter, so we're going to read the whole thing. Uh, It's page 1,200 in the Blue Bibles and 1,858 in the large print. If you have neither of those, it's between Titus and Hebrews. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. While reading that, I realized I haven't sent out the Sunday school. It's probably a good time for them to go now. can tell some of them were a little bit worried about having to stay in. (laughs) Recently, I've been going through a devotional aimed at husbands who are also policemen. I have to admit, it is very cheesy, and I do mean really cheesy, but it's been helpful in several ways. And one in particular this past week is it's helped me reflect on what it means to be helped by your wife. 
Now, when you think of that, it's easy, isn't it, to go straight to the practical things, the everyday running of a household. But there's much more to it than that. Beth helps me by being one of God's tools to make me more like Jesus. You see, being married to Beth exposes my sin. Behaviors that might not come to light if I was on my own are revealed because when I'm lazy or angry or selfish, it hurts my wife. And what's more, Beth provides part of the motivation I need to confront that sin. I love her and I want to be good for her. So, rather than being a source of pain, it pushes me to confront my flaws, even when it might seem easier to cover them up. And on top of this, Beth reminds me daily of Jesus. Her grace and patience with me points me to my Savior, who died for me and ultimately purchased my freedom from sin. And the truth is that, to varying degrees and in different ways, all relationships do a bit of that, don't they? Whether it's by example, by revealing something in us, or even by their absence, friendships and partnerships in the gospel show us something about ourselves. And I think that's part of the point of this letter. And as we read and study this passage, we're going to ask ourselves, what do these relationships between these three men reveal about them and about us? Because this is a letter which establishes its own context to some degree, we're going to jump straight in. And as we do, we're going to see that this letter is about love. It's a letter from Paul. Paul was the last of the apostles to be called. They were men who were called personally by Jesus to spread the gospel. And Paul's main task was to take the gospel to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And he traveled across the known world, teaching and founding churches wherever he went. And his letters to the people he met and the people he knew of and the churches he supported form a large part of the New Testament. Tim's preached on Colossians recently, and we're looking at another one today. And I'm sure even just looking at Colossians, we've realized how full his letters are of weighty theological truth and practical guidance about how to live as believers. He was imprisoned several times during his ministry, And historians largely agree that this letter was written during his first imprisonment in Rome. It's worth noting that Roman prisons were a very different affair from ours today. There were no kitchens, no allowances or support programs. If you were in a Roman prison, you depended on your friends and family outside the prison to feed you, clothe you, and manage your affairs while you were locked up. It's from Paul to Philemon and his family his home family and his church family. And based on this letter, Paul uh, Philemon was probably a wealthy man living in the city of Colossae. Because we know from this letter that he owned at least one slave, Onesimus, and that he had a home large enough for people to meet in, not to mention a guest room in verse 22. And the way Paul talks about partnership in verse 17 and being restored to Philemon in verse 21 suggests that the two men had met previously, and probably that Paul had a hand in his conversion. His description of him as a fellow worker also suggests that Philemon had a degree of responsibility for the church that he hosted. Aphia was probably Philemon's wife. We don't know it for sure, but the fact that her name's here supports the idea because while Philemon would have been 
overall responsible for his household, his wife would have run the day-to-day affairs, including the management of slaves. So her agreement to Paul's cause would have been crucial. Archippus could have been Philemon and Aphia's son, or another man active in the ministry at Colossae, we just don't know. But Paul recognises in his greeting that Onesimus' return will impact both Philemon's physical and spiritual families. Onesimus' return to church and home would need everyone's commitment and support. Regardless of that, though, the letter has clearly been written primarily to Philemon. In verse 7, Paul says that your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. And of the 19 yous in this passage, only three of them are the plural. So it's obvious that the majority of this letter is aimed directly at Philemon. And the purpose of the letter is quite straightforward. Paul seems to have come into contact with one of Philemon's slaves named Onesimus. It's not clear exactly how they came into contact or how Onesimus came to be so far from his master. But what is clear in verses 18 and 19 is that Onesimus has wronged Philemon. Now, however, Onesimus is being converted and is returning to his master to put things right. Paul has clearly become very attached to Onesimus and writes this letter to intercede on his behalf. It's worth noting in verse 1 that this is the only time in any of his letters that Paul defines himself as a prisoner. He seems to be purposefully humbling himself while, as we'll see in a minute, elevating Philemon, setting the tone for the whole letter. So from the outset of this writing, Paul appeals to Philemon as his friend in distress, rather than as an apostle. And as Tim mentioned last week, this letter seems to have been written as a companion to the book of Colossians, which he's been preaching on. In Colossians 4, Paul talks about sending Onesimus to the church there. And it makes sense that this letter would be sent at the same time. It should be no surprise then that Paul's openings to both Philemon and Colossians are very, very similar. So we're meant to take this letter to Philemon together with the book of Colossians, which, as Tim helpfully titled his series, is all about true spirituality. In Colossians, Paul calls the church to be a community united through faith in Jesus, ever growing in their understanding of and obedience to God's word. Their life is to be characterized by loving, sacrificial service to one another and to the gospel. And it's empowered by the freedom that is only found in the forgiveness purchased by Christ's sacrifice. That's Colossians. And this book is where the rubber hits the road for Philemon. Paul writes as a spiritual father both to Philemon and Onesimus. And he pleads for a reconciliation between the two. As such, his opening prayer, asking for grace and peace, isn't an idle one. You see, this situation is an acid test for the truths that Paul taught to the Colossians. Now, an acid test was the way merchants in the ancient world proved that gold was real. They'd take whatever it was that was supposed to be gold and scrape it against a rock, and then they would pour over it an acid that dissolves most metals, but not gold. If the gold was still there at the end, they knew it was real, and otherwise they'd been saved a lot of money. So for Philemon, this is going to be a real test of his faith. You see, in that part of the world, 
A master would be expected to give out harsh punishments on slaves that ran away. Common penalties included being made to wear a metal collar with your master's name and address on it, beatings or brandings, or even crucifixion. And if Philemon, a man of standing in the community, showed Onesimus mercy, he could be made out as weak to the whole town. He could be expected to be ridiculed by his peers. He might face rebellion from his other slaves. He could lose out on business if people were unwilling to trade with someone who couldn't keep his own slaves in check. So Philemon's faith is going to be scraped against a rock and doused in metaphorical acid as he is confronted with his disobedient slave and is called to show Christ's mercy and forgiveness to Onesimus. Hence grace and peace. Having prayed that, Paul reflects on Philemon as a person in prayer, and there are two things that stand out to him in verse 5. The first is Philemon's love for all God's people. He describes it as a source of joy and encouragement before summarizing what it looks like in verse 7. He says, Philemon refreshes the heart of the Lord's people. And the meaning of that phrase is that he gives rest. He is a, a haven in the storm of life among toil and hardship. He is steadfast and encouraging for all of God's children without discrimination, even against runaway slaves. He is a man of love. And the second thing that Paul highlights about Philemon's um, character is his faith in the Lord Jesus. And it's the engine that powers Philemon's love. Now, we lose a little bit in the translation in verse 5. In the original Greek, it's what's called a chiasm, which is several phrases laid out in pairs to highlight a key point. So if we have, I'll show it you very briefly. You can see you've got A, B, C, you've got A and B as the pairs, and C in the middle. And you can see how his love toward all the saints sandwiches his faith in Jesus, and the point that they are Philemon's characteristics is the center. And I think Paul's making the point here that Philemon's faith in Jesus is intimately and irreversibly intertwined with the love he has for the Lord's people, something that should be true of all of us. In 1 John 3, it says, This is how we know who the children of God are and who are the children of the devil. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Faith in God and love for his people go hand in hand. Verse 6, as he continues his prayer, is a little bit difficult to translate. If you've got an older version of the NIV or another translation altogether, it might read quite differently to what we read in the church Bibles. Literally, the Greek reads, in order that your sharing of the faith may become active in the recognition of every good that is in us toward Christ. Straightforward. What it means is the word sharing at the beginning is the Greek word koinonia. Multiple meanings in Paul's writing. It means a charitable gift. He uses it to mean a fellowship or the act of sharing. And that's the way he generally uses it, to mean the act of taking part or sharing in something. For example, in 1 Corinthians, he says, Is it not the cup of thanksgiving for which we've given thanks, a participation, koinonia, in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation, same word again, in the body of Christ. He describes the church as one body sharing in the body and blood of Jesus Christ, in that verse in Corinthians. 
And in the context of the rest of this sentence, I think that the sharing of the faith relates to the shared experience of a living faith in Christ. This collective experience, serving the same saviour, joins us together. It welds us to one another through our joint commitment in Jesus. Like Darren read for us, like our internal organs are unified and synchronized by their connection to the brain, Christians' faith in Jesus, their spiritual head, welds them together into one body, working with one another in his service. So Paul is praying that the experience of having this shared faith in Jesus will deepen Philemon's understanding of what he calls every good that is in us toward Christ. And this is where I think the NIV's um, translation is a little bit deficient, because the word used for good, which is agathos, is overwhelmingly used in the Bible to mean good deeds or decisions rather than something we have. So this good that is in us are the good deeds that God's people are empowered to do for the sake of their living head, Jesus. So, if I can rephrase verse 6, I think it should mean, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith will deepen your understanding of the good things we may do to serve Jesus. And verse 7 suggests that Paul prays this with confidence because Philemon has already proven his love for God's people. Now, I don't know how you felt reading this passage. The first time I read it, I felt like there was some kind of tension between how Paul describes his appeal and what he's actually like. After all, if you look at verse 8, it seems like a little bit of a threat, doesn't it? Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to, yet I prefer to appeal. It's a little bit speak softly and carry a big stick, isn't it? It's easy to take it as a veiled reference to his apostolic authority, which many people have done, in which case he might as well have not bothered with all the niceties. It can feel like less of a please and more of an or or else. But this is the living word of God, and when our logic clashes with what the Bible seems to be saying, we need to reassess our assumptions. Firstly, the word that's translated bold. In English, that word kind of has a negative connotation, doesn't it? It can often mean something a bit like shameless or brazen. But Paul writes the Greek word parousia, which is defined as speaking freely the obligation to speak the truth for the common good, even at personal risk. So again, it's the obligation to speak the truth for common good, even at personal risk. And in the New Testament, it's generally used to describe a surprising candidness, something that defies expectations. For example, um, after Peter and John were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were questioned about their teaching and miracles by the rulers and the high priests, it says this, it says, when they, the rulers and the high priests, saw the courage, parousia, of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were surprised. It's unlikely then that Paul is threatening Philemon with his apostolic authority because that wouldn't be a surprising boldness. And throughout this letter, especially in verse 9, Paul is careful to stress the social inequality between him and Philemon. Remember, Philemon was probably a wealthy man with standing in the community. And Paul, on the other hand, was a once respected teacher, fallen from grace and now detained in chains at the emperor's pleasure. So it doesn't make sense for Paul to be threatening Philemon. 
which begs the question, what is he getting at? And I think the key is the origin of Paul's boldness. In verse 8, he says, although in Christ I could be bold. He isn't saying that he can force Philemon to do what he asked because he's an apostle. He's saying that as a brother in Christ, Paul must speak the truth about Philemon's duty as a believer. And the phrasing here suggests that Philemon's duty has changed because Philemon was changed when he became a believer. Don't forget, Philemon's peers would expect him to exact brutal revenge on Onesimus for running away. But even after a quick read, Paul's letter presents a stark alternative, doesn't it? As you might expect, given the men's confession of faith in Jesus, it seems that grace, not wrath, is now Philemon's duty. And Paul's quite upfront about that, isn't he? He leaves no doubt that Philemon should welcome Onesimus back as a brother in Christ. What he's not prescriptive about, however, is what that looks like in this specific situation. And we'll get on to that later. So rather than confront Philemon and challenging him in this letter that was read to the whole church, Paul appeals to him on the basis of love, which, as we've seen, is one of Philemon's defining characteristics. And before getting into the details of the appeal, Paul sets the scene by describing what's happened to Onesimus since he ran away in verses 10 and 11. It seems that while Paul was imprisoned for his gospel work, Onesimus came to faith through Paul's ministry. His language here shows how personal this conversion was to him. He literally describes it as fathering or giving birth to Onesimus. And verse 11 is a play on words um, on Onesimus' name. Your footnotes will tell you that Onesimus means useful. Um, So Paul's playing on the transformation from useless to Onesimus useful. As a runaway slave, he was worse than useless. He was a thorn in Philemon's side. The loss of a slave was an embarrassing thing to endure, calling Philemon's leadership into question. But now, Onesimus returns to his master, transformed by God's love. And there's another bit of wordplay here. You see, the word that was used for Onesimus, useful, would have been pronounced exactly the same as the word for Christ. Onesimus was once useless because he was an unrepentant sinner, but now he's a follower of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve meaningfully in God's kingdom. Once useless, this runaway slave now puts himself at his master's mercy, depending on the kind of love that can only come from the Lord that now unites them both. As a converted believer now serving the king, Onesimus is useful, not just as a slave, but in verse 16, as a brother and a friend. Paul talking about Onesimus becoming useful suggests that he stayed with Paul for a while after his conversion and helped him while he was in chains. And when Paul talks about Onesimus taking Philemon's place in verse 13, it's not a dig about Philemon not being there. You see, as Philemon's slave, Onesimus represents him. Paul is confident that if he could, Philemon would refresh Paul's heart by giving him the support he desperately needed in prison. So, by helping Paul, Onesimus was obeying his master, even without Philemon knowing it. And just as a a further reinforcement for that, the word used for help here is diaconia, which is the same word we get deacon from. 
So we're left in no doubt that Onesimus' service was gospel work. And it was so useful that Paul didn't want him to leave. However, while Paul expresses regret at losing Onesimus, he stops short of asking Philemon to send him back. And he takes responsibility for Onesimus' delayed return to Colossae. It seems, in the language that's used here, that Paul deliberated at length about what to do with Onesimus. So having established Onesimus' radical reformation, Paul establishes his appeal. Welcome Onesimus back with open arms. And before we dig into the details of what he's asking for, let's look at how he asks, because in verse 8, he pleads with Philemon on the basis of love. And I think that has sort of three components. The driving force behind the appeal was Paul's intense love for Onesimus. He describes him as his son, his very heart in verse 12. He loves Onesimus as if he'd birthed him himself, which in a spiritual sense, spiritual sense he had. We've just seen how he underlined Onesimus' transformation, having gone from being useless and Christless to being useful in gospel service. And Paul seems to be deeply concerned about the rift between Philemon and Onesimus. Paul asks Philemon to bring him relief in verse 20 by welcoming Onesimus back as a brother in Christ. And the strength of his feelings revealed, isn't it, by the emotive languages he uses. In verse 8 and 9, he said, I appeal to you. In verse 10, Onesimus, my son, who is my very heart, in verse 12. In verse 16, he's very dear to me. Paul cares deeply for Onesimus. And his promise of restitution for Philemon at his own expense, and towards the end in verses 16 to 21, just underlines that further. His promise was legally binding. And as we've seen, as a prisoner, Paul didn't have the funds to pay for anything. He could have faced imprisonment or even slavery himself to pay Philemon back. So you can picture as you read this, can't you, Paul agonizing over his beloved child, Onesimus, as he prepares to send him back to his master and is tortured by the potential consequences of Onesimus' actions. He's driven by love for Onesimus. And the reason that he appeals rather than commands is his love for Philemon which is also evident in the letter. He describes him in verse 1 as a dear friend and a source of joy and encouragement. And yes, the appeal is intense on account of his love for Onesimus, but it's also tender. Paul has that apostolic authority, but lays it aside. In verses 13 and 14, he explains how he would have liked to keep Onesimus for longer. But he recognizes Philemon's prerogative to make his own decision about Onesimus' future. And in verse 15, as Paul suggests that Philemon and Onesimus might have endured this trial so they could be reunited in a new and better capacity, he raise, as he raises the idea, he tempers it with perhaps. Paul doesn't even assume to think what Philemon thinks of him in verse 17. He says, as a question, if you consider me a partner. This whole letter is filled with a loving respect for Philemon. Paul doesn't shy away from what he clearly feels is his duty, pointing Philemon to the need of reconciliation between him and Onesimus. But he displays a trust in Philemon's judgment by consciously holding back on the details. That's why he sent Onesimus back to Colossae, giving Philemon the freedom to prayerfully decide Onesimus' future for himself. 
Paul also acknowledges that he's dependent on Philemon, among others. He admits how useful Onesimus has been, and he credits that to Philemon as Onesimus' master. And he also asks Philemon to refresh his heart in verse 20. He writes with utter confidence, every reference to reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus is definite. And he writes with confidence because of Philemon's love for all of God's holy people. His love has been lavished on all of his brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 7 it says that uh, you have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. And as we saw from that chiasm in verse 5, he's confident that the deciding factor in who receives this love is their faith in Jesus. He never mentions Philemon's love without linking it to God's people. And Philemon loves God's people dearly because they belong to the God who loves him. And that, combined with Onesimus' newfound faith, leaves Paul in no doubt that Philemon will outlove even Paul's greatest hopes. Tim's series on Colossians was full of the phrase, in Christ. And that's the key here as well. Paul appeals to Philemon on the basis of love, but not human love. Just as he asks for grace and peace from God at the beginning of this letter, this love can only come from the Lord Jesus. And so we get to the key of the appeal itself. Paul has been building up to this part of his request. So when he does get there in verse 17, it's not really a surprise, is it? Welcome him as you would welcome me. And as a bit of an aside, although Paul is careful not to be specific, I don't think that the tone of this letter and Paul asking for a benefit from Philemon in Christ, in verse 20, allows for the possibility of Philemon keeping Onesimus as a slave. And regardless of what exactly this partnership will look like between them, it is in Christ and for the Lord's people. And his request to Philemon in verse 20, refresh my heart, has another double meaning. After all, Onesimus is Paul's very heart. He longs for peace from his concern about Onesimus' relationship with Philemon, but also peace for Onesimus, for forgiveness from his sin against Philemon and relief from his life as a fugitive. And Paul's commitment to restitution to pay back Philemon is a further effort to make it easier, both financially and socially, for Philemon to reconcile with Onesimus. By promising to cover his losses, Paul transfers much of the cost and the risk from Philemon to himself. And at the end of verse 20, Paul can't help but remind Philemon that he too has had a great debt cancelled. This one in the eyes of God Almighty. Like verse 8, I don't think that this is an attempt to coerce Philemon. It is, however, a helpful context within which Philemon should mull over his own decision. After all, the need to forgive has never been in question. But how much easier do we find it to forgive when we remember what God has forgiven us? Paul then finishes his letter with his hopes to come to Colossae and visit Philemon there. Though, again, he submits to God's sovereign plan, hoping to be restored in answer to his prayers. And the greetings you see from the five men seem to be aimed directly at Philemon. And the suggestion here is that they are men who can verify what Paul is saying about Onesimus. And then Paul closes with the same prayer as he opened with. 
God's grace for Philemon. So, Paul wrote this letter, an impassioned appeal to a loving brother in Christ, to intercede for a transformed runaway slave. He put his position as an apostle aside to lovingly plead with a godly man to be reconciled with the one who'd wronged him. It's a heartwarming letter. It's taken me from initially feeling a little bit cynical to feeling quite emotional as I reflected on Paul's love for these two men. And I think this letter calls us to ask some challenging questions of ourselves. Each of these three men exemplifies a way we should relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ. As we said, Philemon faced an acid test, a situation that would either prove or disprove whether he really understood the good he should do for Jesus' sake. And what would it mean for him to withstood this test? He'd have to relinquish his claim on repayment and revenge. He'd have to risk being let down again by welcoming Onesimus back. And he would have to graciously adopt Onesimus as his dear brother, accepting whatever reputational harm he might suffer. Can you forgive like that? Can you overlook differences in taste, interests, wealth, mannerisms, education, worship styles, etc., and wholeheartedly love people based solely on their standing with Jesus? If you're unsure about the answer, here are some symptoms you might want to consider. When you see someone sat on their own in church, or when someone you don't normally talk to comes over to you, How do you feel? What do you say about your brothers and sisters in Christ when you're in the comfort of your own home? Do you consistently and earnestly pray for your brothers and sisters? If Paul had written this letter to you or I, would he have been so confident? And what about Paul? His passion for reconciliation is obvious in how he writes, isn't it? He was willing to literally bankrupt himself if it would help two of his brothers in Christ reconcile. Are we this committed to church unity? Not just to the agreement of the statement of faith, which is very important, but in our everyday relationships, to addressing and healing the rifts that occur between us. Now, before everyone goes rushing off and throwing themselves eagerly into situations in which they might not be welcome, I think it's helpful to consider the context in which Paul has intervened as a guide for us. Paul knows both of these men intimately. They are like family. He calls Onesimus his son and Philemon his dear friend and brother. So if you think you should speak to someone about something, ask yourself, do you love them the way Paul loves Onesimus and Philemon? And if the tables were turned... Would you trust them enough to be vulnerable and to receive their wisdom as something that comes out of love? And do you think they feel the same way about you? If not, you're probably not the right person to offer them advice. Instead, you need to get to know them, don't you? Not so you can fix whatever's wrong, but because this situation has revealed a problem in your relationship. As Jesus said, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
Make sure your relationships are right before you offer advice on anybody else's. And finally, Onesimus. I think it's easy to overlook that Onesimus didn't have to go back to Philemon. I mean, what was Paul, being stuck in prison, going to do? Now, he chose to go back to his master. He knew that he'd wronged him and that it needed to be put right, even if that meant some unpleasant consequences. He humbled himself and cast himself on Philemon's mercy. And how much easier would it be for us to settle disagreements if we were all a little bit more like that? Instead, our tendency can be to try and style it out, isn't it? We try and bluff our way through something without admitting fault. But this letter calls us to humble ourselves before our brothers and sisters, admitting our sin and accepting the consequences it might bring. As I reflected on these three men, I have to confess that I was a little bit discouraged. I am not as like them as I would like to be. But this letter doesn't challenge us with those things and then leave us to our own devices. You see, the two threads that run right through this passage are Jesus and love. Specifically, agape love. Sacrificial, unconditional love. And I expect that we all have to admit that we fall short of the example set for us here. But there is one who not only lives up to these examples, but exceeds them. Jesus surpasses what we see in this because he is the source of those behaviors and characteristics. He didn't just forgive a runaway slave or intervene in a difficult situation between two friends. And he didn't have any sin for which he had to humble himself. Now Jesus did much more than that. He is the holy, perfect, all-sustaining Lord of the universe, and he humbled himself to be a tiny baby. And he lived a full life on earth, experiencing all the hardships and temptations. And he was cruelly murdered as the worst kind of criminal, not because he deserved it, but because we deserve it. He didn't accept consequences for his sin because he didn't have any. He accepted the consequences for your sin and mine and was brutally punished so that all of us could be forgiven. He bought the unity we're being called to here by the shedding of his blood and empowers us to live as one body by his Holy Spirit. So yes, these are three examples that we need to strive for. They are models that we must use to relate to one another for the sake of the church. But we work at it not as individuals trying harder, but as saved children of God, responding to the most amazing, intense love of all shown to us on the cross. And in a minute, we're going to take some time to remind ourselves of Christ's sacrifice. But first, let's reflect on our relationships with one another in light of the cross as we sing together beneath the cross of Jesus.